everybody, it's Brian. Thanks for tuning in. If you're ready to buy or sell a home in Pierce, South King, or Thurston County, please check out John Hurlbutt and his team over at Altitude Homes. John's an old friend and someone I know you can trust. He will also donate $500 to Ben's Fund for every closed transaction. I know how hard it is to find a real estate agent who has your best interests in mind. John can be that guy for you and benefit a great cause to boot. Check them out on the web at altitude-re.com slash hb. Again, altitude-re.com slash hb. Or give them a call at 253-222-2626. That's 253-222-2626. Go Hawks! Everybody, uh, welcome hey. to Real Hawk Talk. Um, this is episode, I think, twenty-seven. Uh, this is Brian Nemhauser, uh, one of your hosts, along with uh, the Hawk Blogger crew. You've got Jeff Simmons, who is uh, up in Toronto at Real Jeff Simmons on Twitter. Uh, you've got Evan, uh, fiance uh, to be, um, currently married to be. Um, and he is at Evan on HB uh, on Twitter. That's the only thing you're going to know about Evan the rest of the Good to be married. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, Nathan Ernst, uh, who is, gosh, Nathan, always yours is always hard. It's like at Nathan11 or something. Nathan E11. It's very Nathan, complicated. Dude, I don't know. I think you might need to rethink that handle. Uh, it might be time. At Nathan, capital E11, um, for all you Twitter trivia buffs out there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great follow. And um, special guest tonight um, <laughs> is is uh, Lydia Cruz. So um, we're really happy to have you here, Lydia. Thank you for joining okay. the show. Um, Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, It's been a while. We're trying to get this arranged. I know you've got kind of crazy early hours. And... Um, you started working on the Brock and Salk show a little while ago, and um, we're going to talk to you about all sorts of fun stuff. But if you wouldn't mind, just um, give us a little rundown of how you got involved in that show and the kind of work you're doing for for, for uh, Brock and Salk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had the great fortune of interning for them first. So that was uh, – I worked in Top 40 radio, actually, for four years. Uh, I used to work for Move 92.5. on. Um, I worked on the Brook and Jubal Morning Show for four years. Uh, strangely won my job in a contest, which uh, I went to school for something entirely different uh, for developmental psychology and <laughs> uh, ended up entering a contest for a radio job and it turned into a four-year gig. I uh, didn't resign my contract there. I actually went back to school for sports journalism and that's when I interned at, with Brock and Salk over the summer and they ended up hiring me about I don't know, eight months later as I was just leaving school. So yeah, I've been there just about a year now and it's been, it's been pretty fantastic. Yeah. Get to talk sports. Do you have a little bit of a crazy hours, crazy schedule, <laughs> but uh, it's worth it. So. Cool. And, and what kind of, what kind of, you know, work are you doing on the show? Um... Yeah, I, uh, so I host the hour before Brock and Salk. Uh, it's called the Blitz at 6am to 7am. 
And that is just by myself. So I'm kind of a one person, one woman show. I'm the board op, I'm the producer, I'm the host. Um, and then for Brock and Salk, I get to help do a little like co-production slash I'm their board op. Um, yeah, so it's fun. It's a really fun, dysfunctional family and it's a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had the opportunity to get to know both those guys. They're both, uh, you know, great parts of the Seattle sports landscape. Um, they are. And uh, they're really interesting pairing together. So uh, it's been great to have it's good them. Good odd coupling, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I actually want to ask a little bit more about, you know, your background, how you got into what you're doing, but, um, I think everybody's going to want to know, like, you've got the, you're killing all of us on backdrop for this, uh, episode. Um, oh. like what you are clearly oh. a hardcore Seattle sports fan Just through a little bit of what's going on behind you in this room. Oh, uh, so that is actually, a that is between like me and my dad. That is like the the sports collection, the bobblehead. Uh, obviously, we're huge baseball fans. So um, my mom's side of the family, they're from St. Louis. So actually, actually grew up listening and watching Cardinals games a lot when I was younger, but also a huge Mariners fan. So they've got, we've got uh, some of the bobblehead collection back there. And I finally took them out of their boxes. They had been in their boxes the whole time. So that, that happened. And then yeah, some of the bats from over the years, the Mother's Day stuff that they've done and the other auctions that they've done. So it's a little a little bit of the baseball collection that we've got. It's not quite as prolific on the football front, sadly, but Yeah, I, I noticed in your uh, Twitter profile your background is a it looks like a Kendall Gill jersey. Yes, that, yeah. Is that that is? Yes. Okay, so my mom went to Illinois too. So I, yeah, I watched a little of him there, but then he was one of my favorite players when he played with the Sonics. So I still got, still got the Kendall jersey. I've got some weird Sonics gear. I've got like, I was weirdly obsessed with Luke Ridnour. Uh, so I've got, I still got my Luke Ridnour jersey. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, I, I have to ask, you know, Evan is uh, one of the big Sonics fans on this show. I'm a, I'm a Trailblazers fan, so uh, I, I'm going to allow this for a little while, but I will limit it at some point. Uh, so, Evan, do you even know who Kendall Gill is? Were you, were you like born when he was playing? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what that name was. <laughs> Completely clueless. Completely clueless. Okay. It's okay. Uh, yeah, I like I said, I had some weird taste, so it's all right. Well, I think I saw some fist pumping when you said Luke Ridnour. Would you, you care to explain that, Evan? Yeah, no, I just grew up going to Sox games with my dad, and before I was a Seahawks fan or a Mariners fan, um, I was a, a, a huge basketball fan, and I, I just remember Luke Ridnour being the most painfully mediocre player, and um, I just loved him to death. I loved him to death, so <laughs> huge I know. fan. No, I think that's exactly probably what I loved about him. I just, like, I don't even know what, uh, but it's when you're younger and you just are attracted to a player for no good reason, that was that was definitely the case with Luke, so. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm still laughing at captions that people are, are adding to uh, Evan's picture that I posted on Twitter. Oh. Um, so, so, Lydia, um, uh, you've got a really uh, eclectic background. You know, you started even just talking about it from, you know, uh, you were interning, you worked for a few years, you know, you've come on, you're now doing hosting and production, but you're also a stand-up comic. Like, what, 
What uh, is that? Is that real or is that just a Twitter? Uh, you know. Uh, okay. Well, the yeah, the caption in my Twitter is one-time stand-up comedian, so it should be that I should clarify that. But I, when I worked at Move In, I worked with um, several comedians over there, so they were always like, "Hey, we're just you should try in like five minutes. Open up, like just do like a tight five. You can do it." That's of <laughs> course the comedic slang. It would be like, a tight five. You can do a tight five, can't you? And um, I was like, no, no, I just, I, I'm not great at public speaking, which is weird, right? Because if you're in the radio biz, you think that that would automatically translate. But no, I get way nervous when I have to speak in public. So I finally got talked into it by a comedian friend, Brian Newt, who actually worked with Cairo for a little while, who uh, he just got a job in LA, working in LA radio, actually. But he's a, he's a stand-up comedian, and he convinced me to do open forum at the comedy underground. So that was, uh, that was my one foray into stand-up comedy. I would do it again though, actually, surprisingly, once you get the first time out of the way, you're like, okay, I could maybe do this. How did it, how did it go? I mean, that, that sounds terrifying. Uh, it is, especially when he was like two weeks before he was like, so we're thinking maybe like more like a 15, could you do like a 15 minute set? And I was like, uh, uh, no, uh, I did end up doing it, but you, I'd had a few drinks beforehand. That was, uh, that <laughs> I think was, we all had a few drinks or something. That was, yeah. Necessary part of it. Yeah. <laughs> but awesome. Um, well, so, uh, I know a lot of folks that follow the show, um, you know, I've been curious from some of our curious about how a number of our guests have gotten into the industry. And I know you're like just starting, um, you know, yeah. you know, um, as you ascend into it. Uh, can you kind of share a little bit about was there any logical path that you went through and any tips that you have for people that are interested in kind of following in, in, in your path and your footsteps? Yeah, I think maybe the biggest Thing I've learned, well, A, it's so much about relationships and uh, a lot of it is about networking. So if, if you ever have the opportunity to meet someone or go to something or intern for something, whether it's unpaid or paid, um, I would say that establishing those relationships by whatever means you can is is uh, was huge for me and getting my foot in the door. Uh, also, just taking any and all opportunity you can to learn I was I I'm still probably this person I get teased for being the yes person but if somebody is like hey do you want to learn this do you want to do this I yes I do and uh, whether I have no experience or not uh, I just usually say yes whether that's interviewing whether that's on the production side whether it's Lydia do you want to try and make a video Lydia do you want to do this and so I think in sports media and media in general right now nobody does one thing um, you have to be multifaceted. And, and when I originally got the job, like I had a board op, I had somebody who would, cause I would produce and I would host my show, but someone was working the board and then they're like, Hey Lydia, um, do you mind also being your own board op? And I was like, mm, that sounds terrifying, but, but now I'm doing it and it's, it's somehow working. So <laughs> that would probably be my biggest advice. Just always be willing to learn and to take on something new if you can. That's that's great advice, and and uh, I would definitely reiterate. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff, um, why don't you transition us into talking a little bit about um, Seahawks stuff? Um, uh, probably have some more questions about Lydia's, you know, very background. But um, you know, there's a lot going on with Seattle right now. So so what's top of mind for you? 
I think there's Marshawn Lynch in the background there. Is that right? Yeah, there's a uh, there's Lucky Marshawn Lynch. He was a he makes the rounds usually. Still, he's still a fixture. Game day, he makes an appearance. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> I guess the Seahawks are kind of going through like a transition right now, where like they've been that championship team. They're the team's getting older. They've changed the coaching staff. They might have to start making a big changes with the players. What's kind of your view of where the team is right now, how the team gets back to the Super Bowl? Or like how comfortable are you with where they are right now as a team? That's such a good question. Um, yeah, I wouldn't even call it coaching changes. It's kind of a coaching upheaval. <laughs> and um, you know, definitely the biggest that we've seen in the Pete Carroll, John Schneider era. And uh, honestly, it seems they still have that same identity that they're dedicated to when it comes to when you ask Pete Carroll what their identity is, is, oh, we play great defense, we run the ball, we pound the rock, and we win the special teams battle. But at the end of the day, their ability to accomplish that, especially in the last couple of years, has been questionable. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, I don't know how you guys felt about all the coaching changes. I felt inspired by some more than the others, but uh, I think the hardest thing now is going to be how do they measure that success because you've made all of these changes, but uh, if it doesn't work out in a year, how, how do you, what, what then? And there's such a short span of how much rope you're allowed to give new coaches. So um, plus I think we haven't even seen the beginning of all the personnel turnover that's about to happen. And I think that could like free agency and the draft could be absolutely insane this year. So um, I think identity-wise, Pete Carroll still has a very clear picture of what he wants to be, but I'm not as confident anymore if they know how to accomplish that, which is, I think, the first time that I've ever felt that little bit of worry creep into my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's very uh, reminiscent of some conversations we've had around uh, this show <laughs> as well. And um, I'm curious, you said that some some of the changes you were more supportive of than others. <laughs> you want to you want to say a little bit more or, or uh, ones that you you particularly liked? let's let's stick with that. Yeah, I'm so, yeah, you could tell I'm kind of uh, an innately positive person. so I try not to I try to stay away from bad or you know good and bad. but uh, I think the progression of the coaching hires is uh, they've been progressively less inspiring to me. Uh, I was totally on board with Solari, and uh, I think Schottenheimer could do some good things, especially for Russell Wilson, but Ken Norton kind of confused me just a little bit. I understand. I've heard the word energy thrown around a lot, I think, when it comes to him. Um, that one still kind of confusing me, confuses me, and then hearing the news that Canales is uh, possibly a quarterback's coach, I'm a little thrown by that one because uh, from what we've heard from Pete Carroll is that Russell wants somebody that's going to get on his case and uh, criticize him so that he can become the next level of Russell Wilson and someone who has, you know, never played quarterback, uh, never coached quarterbacks. Uh, that's a little bit of a confusing one to me. I've still got a, a question mark on that. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, Nathan, uh, if you have a take on the Canales news. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty confusing to me too, but yeah. That's Did quite you? a take, Nathan. <laughs> oh, no, I mean... I... That's why we have Nathan on the show. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually the most we've ever heard from Nathan. Oh, like okay. with the zingers, yeah. Did you... No, I mean... Would you have felt... Oh, sorry. When you heard um, 
you know, possibly Zorn was coming into that conversation or was there anybody that you felt would be better, a higher or a better person in that role? I'm curious. It's hard to know with those position coaches, like just who's out there and what that pool looks like. But Zorn was really exciting to me. I got excited about that. I think he would have been the one I got the most excited about of all the changes they've made. Yeah. Well, and say why. I mean, what what, what about Zorn was appealing to you? Just his history in the league. I mean, he worked with Hasselbeck a lot. Uh, you know, I don't know if Evan remembers way back in the early Hasselbeck days, but uh, not always not always the high caliber player that uh, we kind of remember him to be. Um, and Zorn was a big part of that. And then head coaching experience, dealt with a really bad situation in Washington. Um, and But, you know, still managed to have some pretty successful offenses and offenses and the teams were actually okay. So I, I thought he would just be a really cool hire. Yeah. I know Brock, Brock Heard personally vouched for him too, having, you know, been coached by him a little bit as well and saying that uh, his personality type, his teaching style would have fit in well with the Hawks. So yeah, just kind of, that would have been, that would have been intriguing to me. Yeah. Other name though, has Brock gotten any uh, traction on the uh, interview circuit? I know, uh, like on the uh, Monday Night Football uh, circuit or the no no like quarterback uh, coaches Pete oh the quarterbacks I know right yeah. I we were like we ever since that uh, article came out about his Monday Night Football thing we try to tease him about any possible uh, job opportunity where he might be leaving us possible so well uh, you know I thought the Zorn thing was um, going to be fascinating because uh, one I mean this is a guy that's a, he's always been no nonsense he's not I mean if you've ever met him he's someone who'll just stole. People say what's on his mind. There's not a lot of filter to him, and he's very genuine, and he's very confident in what he knows. Um, you know, he takes his the craft really seriously, and I think if I remember right, he's actually the, 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 he was an All Pro at some point or a second team All Pro, like in the '70s, which it's kind of crazy because I never thought he was that level of quarterback, but. Um, you know, as Nathan said, Hasselbeck swore by him, Brock swore by him. Um, so I was pretty excited about that possibility. Um, I'm curious, uh, Evan, I think you have some, you know, some history with, with him or, or know of him a little bit. And what, do you think there's a chance that maybe they asked and he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really interested in going back into coaching? Yeah. So my history with Jim is just, uh, I interviewed him a couple of years ago and one of my a buddy I know, his quarterback coach in high school was Jim Zorn, and um, and that was in high school. And I just I remember when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, we had some off the record conversations about you know Russell Wilson and his techniques, his footwork, all that type of stuff. And and uh, Jim was very passionate about Russell Wilson and in, in areas that he could critique and work on. And uh, I think just looking back to that got me really excited about the potential of Jim Zorn coming in and kind of lighting a fire under Russell Wilson's ass. I was totally cool with that. But, um, you know, I think uh, I think there's maybe a dynamic of, like, wanting to be with family and maybe just not wanting to step back into the league at play here. Who knows? But um, I, I, I share a similar reaction as Nathan. I was really bummed when, when um, the gym news just wasn't positive that he was coming to the Seahawks, uh, just because I was really hoping he would. I think he would have had a great impact on Russ, but – we got to give the next guy a chance, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Lydia, I think one of the things that's, uh, you know, I my theory about the the Canales news is one. I mean, the the wide receiver room was Canales and then Nate Carroll, 
It was Pete's. Yeah. Stuff, right. And I think that room is um, pretty tight knit with Pete and understands what he's looking for. And I think that uh, on this show, there's been some theorizing that when Doug Baldwin spoke out about saying that the problem was not Daryl Bevel, that he was pointing the finger at, at Russell Wilson. I personally think it was more than that. I think he's pointing the finger at, you know, the offensive line. I think he's pointing the finger at young receivers who aren't running the right routes. I think he's pointing at the players in general. But if you take it for a second that he is thinking about Russell, um, what better than taking the wide receiver coach who understands the angst going on in that room and putting it right next to the quarterback who's trying to connect with them. So um, I think that, you know, from an accountability standpoint, that could be a really that could be a boon, whether he's capable of coaching quarterbacks, maybe that falls more on Schottenheimer, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of precedent of wide receiver coaches becoming quarterback coaches. Like I know a lot of fans make this mistake where they don't understand a lot of these roles. Like when someone becomes a head coach from an offensive coordinator, they only look at their offensive coordinator stats when it's a completely different job. If you're a good offensive coach, a lot of the times, just because you're not a quarterback coach, that doesn't mean you're not qualified. Like Bruce Arians, for example, obviously he's not our favorite guy. He started in the NFL as a running back coach. And when he started with Pittsburgh, where he really got his head coaching boost, he was the wide receiver coach. When Fortunately, when Seattle lost that Super Bowl, Arians was their wide receiver coach, and he became the great quarterback guru. Whisper, yeah. Yeah, I, I refuse to call him that. <laughs> I share Mike's view of Bruce Arians. I'm very in line with that. So there's an example of a guy who was a wide receiver coach, became a quarterback guy, developed Ben, developed. So maybe that's the precedent. But, yeah, that's it's not all that common. I'll say that. So, Lydia, I know we've only got you for a little bit longer. And, and yeah. if um, you could, a couple of questions I had about uh, what was your take on, on the season in general? Um, like, and, and when you ex exited the season, what are the things that you're, you're focused on the Seahawks trying to improve and change? Mm. Yeah, that is a, that's a tough one. I honestly think I'm still in some ways processing what happened this season, but I thought almost making it to the playoffs this year probably would have been the worst thing to happen to us, which sounds a t like a terrible thing to say, but I think this was a necessary sort of wake up call or um, jolt because we've kind of gotten, I don't know, spoiled or used to, to uh, that for the last couple of years. And I think that there were flaws in our system, flaws in our identity that we weren't addressing at the time, but because we were, maintaining a certain level of success that it was all right. Um, but I think that it's probably the best worst thing that could have happened to them in terms of this. These are changes that probably needed to happen, whether it is a complete overhaul of the coaching staff or as I think probably um, the personnel is going to be really intriguing to me. And, and this draft is going to be really intriguing to me. <laughs> um, and I think, that if they are able, we've seen that you can turn around a team in a year. We've seen that within our own division and, you know, what the Rams have accomplished, what the 49ers have accomplished. And I don't have any doubts that they can get back to it. I think a lot of people have been more pessimistic about that. And I hate the window closing phrase that I've heard over and over and over again. Um, but I do think that some of these problems really seriously have to be addressed and you have to be able to run the football. And <laughs> that. Yeah, Nathan. You have to be able to run the football. 
Lydia, welcome, welcome to the club. You're <laughs> on the right side of this argument. So good. Okay. <laughs> me and Pete Carroll, uh, we'll stick together on this one. And we'll be together. Yeah. Nathan and the other, you know, analytics nerds can can be on the other <laughs> side. It's all right. It's okay. Um, I like being the not being the analytics nerd. That's usually actually my role. So I, I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll join that crew. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, one last question I had, and then I'll, you know, if the guys have any other questions, I'll, I'll, I'll obviously uh, stop hogging the mic. But um, would you mind, like, I think a lot of people listen to that listen to sports radio just think like anybody can walk in there and talk sports, and it's just super easy, and there's no preparation or thought put into it. Would you mind like peeling back the curtain a little bit and talking about like what goes into getting ready for a three or four hour show and um, you know, what makes somebody good at that in your opinion? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so my show, since my show's on six to seven, it's only an hour, but it is just me. Um, I usually get up every day, probably around two 30 or three. So yeah, this is, uh, like, uh, I'm usually getting in bed here pretty soon. Um, then I, a lot of the prep work I try and do the day before, but because my show and our shows are so timely, it's also, you have to be whatever you've done the night before you have to be ready. And this has happened to me, uh, to throw out your entire game plan and, um, be ready to go with something else. And that's, that's, that was been a hard lesson for me. Uh, I'm a preparation nerd. Uh, I like to be overprepared. And so being able to go on the fly, uh, with something has been a learning <laughs> lesson for me. Um, as for like Brock and Salk, a, a big part of when I started interning and, and producing there, uh, we all, they are a, some of the most hardworking, dedicated, passionate people. I'm really blessed to work with them because they're all so dedicated to their craft. And as you know, none of them really do one thing either. Um, Salk is in a, you know, sort of management role. And then Brock, you know, is, traipsing around the country constantly, you know, to do college football and uh, doing radio hits and TV hits. And so, uh, and yet they have so much dedication to their own show. And I'm so impressed and inspired by that. We all like the day before usually circulate an email between the, between all of us and sort of go over our rundown for the show. A lot of other areas or shows I've been on, they'll just kind of leave that entirely to the producer and they'll say, Hey, just, come up with my show, book my guests, do this for me, give me a sheet, a show sheet of facts that I can read off of. And, um, but that's not the case. Uh, they're very involved, which is cool. And so we kind of do the show prep the night before we know what we're going to talk about. Um, but again, you kind of have to be ready in case that goes on the fly. Um, any sort of like sound or anything that you hear on the show, a lot of times that's, again, you have to cut up your own sound. You have to, um, just be constantly looking for that. So yeah, it's kind of a, you're, as Brock said to me, like when I was still an intern, you kind of have to be obsessed with it. You kind of have to be, uh, constantly, uh, trying to improve and uh, create your craft, which uh, has been a lot of fun. It's sports after all. So at the end of the day, you're having a lot of fun doing it, but it is, it is like a lot, you'll learn. It's a lot of work and a lot of unglamorous, not, not as cool stuff probably as you would have thought. So. Yeah. Before we let you go, any other questions that you guys uh, have for Lydia? I'll ask one. Um, yeah, Lydia, for you, but if you don't know me, I, I was in a very similar position to you 
in 2010 in Canada. Oh, man. And I started in radio. I, I became a website writer. And when the Seahawks played in Toronto to 2012 against Buffalo, I got to cover that game. Everyone knew I was a fan, so they let me do that. I don't know if you've had any stories like this, but one of my eye-opening memories of that game is, do you remember Alan Branch and Red Bryant? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. A locker room, and this is like my boyhood team, like my favorite <laughs> team. And the first thing I see is those two guys butt naked. It was terrifying. Mm, yeah, that's the, <laughs> you had any like eye-opening moments like that, like anything crazy like that, of, like <laughs> covering their favorite team. No, I mean, I, again, Those are big dudes, man. It was crazy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I feel like we just went started a Jeff Simmons therapy session. Lydia, talking <laughs> to like totally deflect. I love it. Oh, uh, tell me your problems, Jeff. No, it's uh, I would it's agree. Take a while. <laughs> yeah, you. There's a level of peeling back the curtain. You know, they kind of say, I don't want to liken it to this, but you know how they say, like, don't meet your heroes. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it to that degree. But there also is this level of, once you see what's going on behind all of the scenes. I'm not saying you become desensitized to seeing like grown naked men in the locker room or anything, but uh, you kind of it takes on a different view for you. And you learn to view a lot of these people as real people as opposed to being a fan. And they're totally normal and they're weird, just like the rest of us and <laughs> boring sometimes, just like the rest of us and uh, sometimes shy, just like the rest of us. So uh, that was probably, I've never, I've never seen any grown men totally naked, you know, not, not yet, but uh uh, you know, there's still well, time. I'm going to talk to when that yeah. uh, Jeff will be the one cowering <laughs> in the corner. Uh, hey, listen, um, I want to make sure you get some sleep for your show tomorrow. It was really nice of you coming on. We'd love to have you back. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, consider this just a, a first visit. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you having me and stuff, chatting. Thanks, Lydia. Take care. Thanks, guys. So, um, Wow, Lydia's great. I think she's I think she's a rising star, um, and I think we're going to hear a lot more from her in the coming years. She's smart. She cares. She knows Seattle sports deeply, and um, uh, as she said, you know, is, is a yes person and positive energy. So she's like she's like a somehow related to Evan. I feel like you know, like the positive energy Seattle <laughs> you know, so cool. sports person. It's two peas in a pod. Um, so I'm curious guys, we started talking about the coaching stuff. Um, you know, a few other things came out since we last talked, I think the Michael Barrow news was, was came out after that. Um, it was the other assistant head coach on the defensive side that got let go. Um, the Canales news came out. Uh, what else? Other coaching news? Far uh, Farwell's interviewing elsewhere, I think. Yeah, Hadn't Carolina. Heath Farwell? Yep. Wow. And That's Chris Richard is the passing coordinator in Dallas. So what, exactly. He's he's defensive backs coach and passing coordinator. It's just like a fancy they just they just threw him a bone on the secondary position coach, right? <laughs> I mean, really, like it's like how Cable was assistant head coach or, or the run game coordinator. I mean uh, who knows what the responsibilities actually are, but that's maybe just him getting a little bump in his title. Yeah, like what does it look like for Chris Richard to coordinate the passing game, though? I, 
it's just so odd. It makes it feel so like I work in tech. It feels like it, it'd be making me like a chef at Daniel's Boiler tomorrow night. Like what? Like I just don't. I don't understand the translation at all. He's an offensive passing game coordinator, right? A defensive yeah. passing game coordinator. No, no, offensive passing game coordinator and secondary, like defensive backs coach. Two two what? titles. One's on offense. One's that, on defense. I think Nathan's just catching up to why we think this is weird. That's my confusion. It makes no sense. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing the the big cogs, you know, crank away his uh, noggin there. It's, uh, it's it's great. Yeah, it's it's weird, right? Um, I, I think I'm one of the only people that's not sad that Richard's moving on. Like, I, I don't have any. I'm not really worried about him moving on. Um, it's more about who's replacing him. Um, I mean, have we heard anything other than Ken Norton? Have we heard any? Oh, Travis Jones was the other one. I think that was the one I was trying to remember. He was a defensive line coach from 2013 to like 17. I think he'd formerly been with New Orleans. Um, pretty highly thought of, and he's leaving. Um, so that's another vacancy. Like, I don't know if this is right, and I haven't been able to really figure out a good way to, to quantify this. I don't think I've ever seen a larger coaching turnover um, for the Seahawks. Like, even when Pete Carroll took over, he kept some of the staff from Jim Mora. When Jim Mora took over, he definitely took a lot of the staff that was with Holmgren. Um, closest thing I can think of is when Holmgren took over back in 99, he brought in Fritz Shermer. He brought in, like, a lot of his own people. I don't know if it was everybody, but – can you guys remember a, a situation where there's been this much coaching change in one season? Not me. I mean, it, it's we're at the point where it's, it's quicker to name the people who are still here, right? I mean, it's like Canales and Hurt Carol. and and who? Nate Carroll. Nate, yeah, the Carrolls are Carol. all safe. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's brain drain and then there's brain drain. No, um... Uh, special teams, though, didn't get touched, which is kind of weird because special teams wasn't great. So there's that. Yeah, which is one of the ones I kind of question, honestly. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think special teams has been very good for the past few years, and there's been some questionable decisions uh, there as well. And we, we give certain coaches a lot of crap about personnel, but I would bet Brian Schneider had some say in whether John Ryan and Stephen Hashka stuck around or were let go and – um anyway i think he's gotten off scot-free frankly um and we've confirmed he's not related to john he's, he's not related to john i was about to say that okay <laughs> so, there's no nepotism in football oh <laughs> no, no, no. Gosh, right yeah so uh, it feels like there's been way more exits than entries like uh, i haven't heard a lot of other names come up so far other than i mean canals is just a reshuffling we just heard that the Seahawks had, had reached out to the Cardinals about their wide receivers coach and were denied, um, which is kind of interesting because you'd think that they just elevate Nate Carroll, who was the assistant wide receivers coach. If Canales is going to be QB coach, you just think that they'd elevate his son to be wide receivers coach, but maybe he's not ready. Yeah, I mean, the other name I heard from wide receiver coach was John Morton, and I don't know if that makes any sense. I think he was just fired from Philadelphia, right? Or not Philadelphia, uh, the Jets. 
was their offensive coordinator. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, and he worked with Pete back in USC, but I don't know if he has any. If he was a wide receiver coach. <laughs> By the way, I'm I'm getting some comments in the chat pod from our smarter uh, chat folks who are saying that uh, Pro Football Talk is calling Chris Richard the defensive passing game coordinator. Okay. All right. That makes <laughs> see that makes sense. Okay, so then the question becomes: Has anyone ever heard of a defensive passing game coordinator? Like, what the hell does that mean? It's their attempt to lure Earl Thomas to Dallas. That's my guess. Stop it, Jeff. Stop. I know. I, I, I'm erotic. I, I've been freaking out. You're not trading Earl Thomas. The Seahawks are not trading Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas is dying in a Seahawks uniform. Who who wins for you, Evan? If John Schneider trades Earl Thomas, where where does your heart go on that? Do you become a Cowboy fan? Do you do you forsake John Schneider, or how does that work? Got loyalty to the franchise, but oh, okay. I mean, oh God, that would hurt a trade of Earl Thomas to the Cowboys. I mean, oh God, the compensation compensation better be nice. That's all I gotta say. Maybe like a third rounder. <laughs> yeah, like ten of them. Yeah. Uh, I hated that my neurotic side came out when I saw Richard to Dallas. That was my first thought, and. I know, I know. I had the same reaction. That it makes it makes some sense. Um, I think those two are pretty tight. You know, they they talk about the big the the personnel changes. I mean, first comes the coaches, and then the the concept would be that they start looking at personnel makeover. Um, honestly, like I, I'm not so sure about how much is going to be going, how much turnover there's going to be on the the player side. I mean, I think if you turn over the coaches the way you've turned over the coaches and then you turn over the players in some massive way beyond just the free agents, there's already going to be a lot of turnover just if you don't re-sign a bunch of the unrestricted free agents. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around that they're going to trade an Earl Thomas or Richard Sherman, um, you know, Michael Bennett we've talked about. Like, I'm starting to think they're going to hold on to, to a decent chunk of those guys. Um What's what you guys have a different instinct looking at that? I mean, Evan, you just wrote this article. Um, yeah, uh, wonderful 4,000 word article. Um, <laughs> was it really 4,000 words? I think that's what I saw. It was a lot of words. Oh my god, uh, there, there are well, well chosen words though. I appreciate that. Um, if we're not talking about free agents, one name that has kind of popped back into my head repeatedly, um, and I wouldn't be a fan of this move, I don't think is Justin Britt. And let me tell you why. There's obviously the Davis Hasu rumor that, you know, uh, they're going to give Solari control to redo the entire offensive line, except for Dwayne Brown. Don't know the credibility to that, but if it's true, Justin Britt, when I wrote um, and broke down his contract on Hawk blogger, uh, when he got his extension, the Seahawks implemented this really weird option that allowed them to get out of the contract or cut him or trade him with not a significant amount of uh, dead money capital hitting them. And that little five-day window was that five-day window immediately following the 2018 Super Bowl. And that is very interesting to me. Um, it, it's not a common option bonus that they that they implemented in its contract it's it's extremely rare and and just not it's just not a common contract thing especially for the seahawks to do that so everything they do is you know has a reason associated to it so 
I'm not, I'm not saying they're absolutely going to trade Justin Britt and I'm not saying I want them to trade Justin Britt, but it's just happened. Like those may be two coincidental factors that make me wonder if, you know, there's all this talk about the defensive side of the ball and maybe trading Earl Thomas, trading Michael Bennett and trading maybe KG Wright, all that crazy stuff. Um, Maybe we haven't considered somebody on the offense and maybe it could be Justin Britt, but I think it's unlikely overall. So. I mean, they did turn around and draft a center after they signed him to a contract that they have an out on. That's the other point to this that I completely forgot about. Nathan, thank you. It's obviously that Ethan Pochick could slide in at center. So it's several coincidental factors that, you know, I, I don't think it makes it like a crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah, I, um, I <laughs> I'll admit that I was going through and looking at like, uh, Man, I would that that I wouldn't sign Justin Britt to an extension, and then I realized that they already had. <laughs> and, and I'm like, damn it, because I mean, yes, he was an alternate for the Pro Bowl last year, but I just think he's he's like a slightly above average center. Um, I don't think he's great. And in this situation, I would a hundred percent walk away from Justin Britt and have Ethan Posick at center and look at, you know, other guys at guards. I think they've got some other option at guard, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, people bring up the excuse though, of like where it's not an excuse, but bring up the question of like, where are you going to spend that money then? And that's a valid question. But to me, it's more about what draft picks can you get in return? Because obviously we have a huge gaping hole in, in this upcoming draft. And, and if you could flip them for some, flip them for some picks and offload some salary, um, depending on the compensation, I think it's worth considering. How much how much salary cap space might you gain by moving on from him? Oh God, it's so complicated. Um, uh, gain, it's not much. Like, it, it's more about cleaning the slate in future years. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's 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 like a few million. I, I I think off the top of my head, I'd have to double check. Did you guys see, I mean, talk about this weird and lame state of offensive lines in the NFL. Did you see that Dwayne Brown got added to the Pro Bowl roster? What? Yeah, today. I mean. That's a, that's a reputation vote, though. I mean, <laughs> that's, a that's a legacy thing. Like, What, do you play six games this year? I know. Not uh, great. Well, Derek Carr was also submitted to the Pro Bowl, was he not? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are worse choices. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That that was just crazy to me. Um, but um, kind of changing the subject a little bit, I want to get back to your article in a second, Evan. But um, you know, obviously they had uh, the the conference championship games this weekend, and I'm curious, like, what you guys took away from those games. Um, you know, what your impressions were. Um, you know, anything that that. Uh, made you think about the Seahawks and what they need to do um, relative to what the, the current state of, you know, the best teams in the NFL looks like. I'll start. I think they got to make my takeaway was that I hope Pete Carroll was watching those games because you saw a lot of what Seattle doesn't have. You saw a running back screen game. Philly used it really well. New England used it really well. Jacksonville did some really good stuff early in the game before they got lost all their balls and got too conservative. Um, they were able to – you saw Philly, how good they were protecting the quarterback. So I think – and 
I, I think with Russell, you, we saw how difficult everything was on him this year. And when you saw what Brady was doing and we saw how seamless it was for Foles with that offensive line against a great defense, I think the number one thing that Seattle needs to do is they need to make things easier on Russell. And yeah, Russell has some issues. He's been part of the struggles at first, but whether that's offensive line, whether that's getting a wide receiver, I mean, a running back screen game, I think that's that was my takeaway, just the difference in those teams and what Seattle was this year. Nathan, how about you? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It was, you know, I mean, not to harp on the run stuff again, if we, if we can go there if we want. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that for all the credit that Leonard Ford has gotten this year and all the talk about the Jags, you know, running the Seahawks blueprint and all that, you know, they lost because they got stubborn about running the ball and they couldn't run the ball well, even though they spent the fourth overall pick on a running back. Uh, and they, you know, pissed away a 10-point lead. Um, so I think that you saw a lot of the storylines there around drafting a running back high or, you know, depending on the run game, um, all that kind of fell apart. And, you know, when push came to shove and you had a good Jags team facing off against a good Patriots team um, and, you know, both teams with their weaknesses, uh, Blake Bortles couldn't, you couldn't like uh, trust Blake Bortles to win a game. And so even the fact that they got up and even the fact that they have invested all this in a running game, and even though they were committed to the running game, um, they saw their lead slip away and they lost the game. And so I think, you know, if there's questions about you know, how Seattle should prioritize this offseason, prioritize their draft, I think you saw that, you know, at the very least, taking a running back that high um, was a mistake. And then you can look at the other side with the Vikings and um, wonder, you know, Dalvin Cook got hurt. And so obviously, you know, pretty much any pick would have been a better pick than Dalvin Cook for this year. But you saw how productive they could be or, you know, how much they could get out of their running game without Dalvin Cook, right? Um, and so imagine if they had actually applied that pick to a position that was useful and just ran with McKinnon and, you know, Murray all year long. I mean, maybe that game was a blowout, so who knows? But, you know, maybe that's the difference and maybe that, that keeps them in it and maybe they're going to the Super Bowl now instead of, you know, going home. So I, I thought a lot of those kind of storylines fell apart. Yeah, I think one of the pieces with the, you know, uh, the passing Nazis that are out there um, that that I I question is um, there's no doubt that if if you can have somebody that is highly efficient passing the ball, that you want to have them doing that more often. I think in almost all situations, I think what gets lost sometimes is that there's just not that many guys truly capable of doing for example what tom brady does like i don't know that if the ja uh, the jaguars had put it on blake bortle's shoulders earlier in that fourth quarter whether he would have, whether, whether it would have turned out well it might have certainly like they i think we can all agree that they got really repetitive and conservative with their play calling in that fourth quarter it wasn't even like just, hey, they're running the ball, being conservative. They were running the same play straight up the middle over and over and over again and getting like very few yards. So that seemed questionable, if nothing else. But I don't think any of us would say that Blake Bortles is like comparable to Tom Brady or someone that you could trust to be as efficient in the passing game as Tom Brady. So 
you know, I just think there's a reason there's very few of those elite quarterbacks that what makes them elite is they consistently make good choices and they optimize risk, you know, versus reward on every play. And if you have someone that can do that really well, then you can, you can really make hay. Um, I just don't know that if the Jags really, you know, I think Bortles played a good game. I just don't know if he would have done it down the stretch. Right. And that's what, you know, they could have had uh, Deshaun Watson and Deshaun Watson got hurt, but who knows how that would have turned out for Jacksonville. Uh, they could have had Patrick Mahomes, you know, they could have addressed that quarterback situation otherwise, and they didn't. Um, he chose to go with, you know, pouring a ton of investment into a running back and it was useless for them. Um, that team. I don't know, you know if you can say it was useless. I mean, I think that if you look at the way that that, I mean, the teams had TJ Yeldon and they've had guys like Chris Ivory or whatever before, I think you could argue that, that whether or not Fournette needed to be the guy, it absolutely like gave them an identity that they committed to and, you know, focused their offense around and gave them some consistency that Bortles has never been able to give them. So I don't know if you could say he was useless, but I get your point. I'm not I'm not a huge proponent of using significant draft capital on running backs. But you know, I mean Ben pointed Ben from Twitter. Everyone everyone knows and loves Ben. Uh Ben was pointing this out, you know, that if Dalvin Cook doesn't get hurt early in the year, everyone's saying the same thing about Minnesota that they've been saying about Jacksonville. But Dalvin Cook gets hurt and Minnesota is, is with Case Keenum is able to, you know, use that running game and, and they ran a lot. They also didn't run well, um, but they also didn't, you know, spend the fourth overall pick and they could have not spent that second round pick on Cook and still gotten that same production out of Murray and McKinnon. So, you know, with with say that, I don't know, maybe drafting a running back fourth overall forced them to run the ball and force them to go away from like Bortles, but that that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I, I don't think, I think that that was a pretty useless pick. I mean, uh, it, it certainly could have been used a lot better in a lot of other ways. Evan, you were, look like you're about to jump in there. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't disagree really on the running back situation. Um, the only thing that really striked me was uh, before the fourth quarter collapsed by the Jags defense, you know, that 10 point lead, nothing. Seahawks fans have never seen anything similar, you know, in a game against Tom Brady like that or anything like that. But um if only the Jaguars had Dan Quinn, it would have gone so much better for them. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't get started, dude. I will take that down. I will take that down. Turn 18 zone coverage. We've seen that before, right? <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I just hope Pete was inspired by the by the youthfulness out of that Jags defense and the nastiness they had. They, I mean, they weren't the 2013 Seahawks, but that defense – was nasty this year. And I, I just, I really hope we get back to something like that and, you know, draft a couple of young stud cornerbacks to, to fill up that group. Let's get some shit talkers back in the secondary. Um, besides that, how embarrassing was that performance by Minnesota? That was a shock of the weekend for me, guys. I, I didn't think there was much a question that Minnesota was going to win that game. I really didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't. I way more respect for Minnesota's defense than I do for the Eagles defense. I think Keenum, I thought Keenum was a better quarterback this year, especially than Foles has been. Um, I, I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for Zimmer as a head coach and what he does with getting his team ready for these games. 
I honestly, I didn't watch the whole game. I, I kind of was done after the, the Patriots ugh, did it again. But um, Jeff, I mean, what, what was your take uh, on that game? That was an all-time no-show. That was as bad as a performance in a big game as I've almost ever seen. That was like Denver in the Super Bowl 48. And, but just, it's one thing to get killed by like the 2013 Seahawks, to get killed by Nick Foles and make him look like a all pro quarterback. That was just, that was embarrassing. And Harrison Smith, a guy that some people think is better than Earl Thomas, he just got roasted all game. He did. It was, it was stunning because Minnesota, the way they played all year, they were so consistent and they were so good and they were so competitive. I, I didn't see it coming from my yeah, way. Does, does anyone believe that the Eagles can beat the Patriots? Absolutely not. Jeff? They'll have to play a perfect game. Uh, I, I think they have the defense to give Brady problems. That front four is really good and they can get after Brady, but I, I just don't I just don't see it. Foles. No, I, yeah, it's tough to see. Yeah, the, the Foles thing is what it really comes back to. I mean, I, I didn't think that either the Vikings or the Eagles stood a chance because I didn't think the, uh, the Patriots were going to lose to Nick Foles or Case Keenum. Yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to. All right, here's a trivia question for you guys. Um, what is the Seahawks' combined record against the two Super Bowl teams since Pete Carroll's taken over as head coach? Uh, are we including playoffs? Yeah. Including playoffs. Oh. I think it's five uh, and one. Yeah. Any other guesses? We got two five. Oh, no, 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 no. Six and one because they played them way back in 2011, the Eagles. So, yeah, six and one, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You care to join that? I remember this stuff. <laughs> got it. You are correct. They are six and one. And I always love to bring it up to people, you know. The one is the big is a big one, right? Um, but you looking at the Patriots game and watching that, I think almost anybody just watches that and is like, Jesus, Brady's down Edelman, he's down uh Gronkowski, um, the defense is out of you know, doesn't have Dante Hightower, like you can go on down the line, they're just decimated, and he goes up against the number one defense in the league. And comes back from 10 points in the fourth quarter and makes it look pretty matter of fact, right? And you're like, nobody can beat this team when it matters. And then I look at it, and the Seahawks have played them three times in the Pete Carroll era. They're two and one against they're one of only a, few, a handful of teams that have a winning record against the Patriots in the last, you know, seven years. And the one loss was them sitting at the one yard line with every reason to believe that they were gonna win. So like it's, it's interesting to me in a way, like they did lose that game, but they lost it in a lot, in a lot of ways. Uh, and we could have been in a situation where we're talking about that the Seahawks have Tom Brady's number and Bill Belichick's number, that they they beat him every single time. The one time they lost, not only were they on the one-yard line, but they were decimated injury-wise on defense. I mean, the entire secondary was hurt, and they lost a lot of people in that game. Um I think people, I don't know. I think people forget that, uh, you know, that the, the Seahawks have played quite well against Bill Belichick and Tom Brady in the time that they've played against him. Yeah. That went in new England a couple years ago. Um, that was that, last year. Or was that last year? 
That was last year. So long ago. <laughs> oh my god, mid twenties life crisis. Um, yeah, no, that's just one of the most satisfying wins. I mean, that was that was with George Fant at left tackle and Jermaine Effetti at guard, like, and on down the line. I mean, it was Didn't Baldwin have like three touchdowns or something. He had a great game, and and part of what it was making me think about it is Seahawks had a similar thing at the very end of that game. Brady marched him down the field. They're at the goal line with a chance to win it, and Cam Chancellor, you know, knocked away the ball from Gronkowski. They they stood up to Tom Brady on his home field in that situation and came away with the victory last year. Yeah. So I don't know. And the Eagles, the Seahawks haven't. The Seahawks are undefeated against the Eagles. They haven't lost. They haven't. They haven't beaten them by less than ten points, and, and you know during the Pete Carroll era, including this year when they beat them by two touchdowns with Carson Wentz, by the way. Um, so I don't know. Like, you can't do the the transference, you know, um, property, but like, it is a football's a weird freaking game, right? Like, I, I don't know how you explain what the Seahawks have done in certain games and uh, their total lack of consistency across uh, the other parts of the season. Yeah. They're six and one against the Patriots and the Eagles. And they're like, I don't know, one and six or worse against whatever they are against the Rams, like (laughs) the Fisher Rams. I mean, yeah. So much of it is kind of a game of matchups, I guess. Uh, I I don't know. It's, it's weird though. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, and if closing up when we got maybe 10 or 15 minutes left uh, here, uh, how do you guys turn the page from, from what, what, uh, what we saw in the conference championships? And then Evan, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what you wrote, you talked to Joel Corey, who we've had on this show, former agent, you talked to Jason uh, over at over the cap. Um, you know, we talked about some of the free agents the Seahawks have, um, What's your expectation after you did that research about what's going to happen? Any of them that you expect them to keep? Who do you expect to go? And, and you know, are there any draft picks you expect the Seahawks? Like, I think anyone's going to get paid big and, and give uh, Seahawks some good draft comp. Uh, the one player I think that they actually might keep, um, and this is just purely based off intuition, I think they're going to keep Bradley McDougal. Um, I just get that sense. Um, he really said like it. What was that? Nathan doesn't like it. Yeah. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't like it either. I, I want, I want, I want them to walk from him, but um, he did a really good job of coming in and sliding in for cam. And uh, I think he, he's one player that they'll keep. Um, but talking with Joel and Jason, uh, they were really just railing on some of the Seahawks offseason decisions um, from 2017, signing Lacey, signing uh, Luke Jokel, Blair Walsh, all those guys. Um, not a fan of Sheldon Richardson. Not a fan. That's that's the big one. For Jason. Jason Fitzgerald is like he's a Jets fan, obviously, like longtime suffering New York Jets fan. Is like staunchly opposed to um, extending Sheldon Richardson. The one thing he said is he thought like Sheldon might mail it in the second he gets an extension. He just has questions around his his motivation, all that type of stuff. Maybe that's from some scarring in New York. Um, that might be it there, but. Um, yeah, Jason is like really, really opposed to the Seahawks. Let somebody else spend millions of dollars on that guy, please. He's just not. I, I I'm telling you, he. I think he's going to ask for low teens or mid teens. 
and I just don't think he's worth it. I, I really don't. Well, I mean, you're going to get the Seahawks are going to get screwed if he does what that was talked about in that article, which is that he'll take a one year deal maybe for, you know, eight or nine million on a prove it contract. If that happens, the Seahawks get nothing in comp pick. I just don't see that. It's a, it's a weak defensive line free agency group and there's too many teams with money. I think someone's going to spend on them. Yeah. Somebody with a lot of cap space might just throw the cash at him. Niners, Raiders, or yeah, Raiders. A um, lot of dumb teams out there. Yeah. Let's hope so. If Mike Glennon can get three years and $45 million, Sheldon Richardson can get three years and 45 Quarterbacks are a, a whole different beast. This is true. <laughs> Have you seen uh, the length of Glennon's neck? I mean, I think that's like... He's a giraffe. A dollar per vertebrae or something like that. Yeah, he's a giraffe. That whole contract situation. <laughs> I call him the ostrich. Giraffe's <laughs> <laughs> <Perhaps> good. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, just kind of like going over the article. I, I, re I really think they got to get away from the middle class. I really think they got to take some risks. One big risk I love to see them take is Delano, Delano, however you say his name, Delano Hill. I would love to see them give him an opportunity. I think um, you got to utilize those valuable young years in, um, uh, in, in his rookie deal. And, you know, we've seen very limited action from him, but I, I think he's somebody um, we need to give an opportunity to. Um, he could he could really outperform expectations. So generally, I'd love to see them stray away from signing anybody big except for Andrew Norwell in free agency. So hopefully, it's a quiet free agency. Um, you know, for guys coming in. Did did, did you ask uh, by any chance those guys what they think Norwell is going to command in free agency? Uh, I looked up some previous conversations from a few weeks ago um, with Jason, and I remember he, he floated out the thirteen number. Uh, the guard market was just set by Zeitler, Kevin Zeitler last year of the Cleveland Browns, and I believe he got $12 million a year. Um, so if Andrew Norwell, who was just selected to All-Pro this year, um, didn't allow a single hit on Cam Newton this year, um, that's the market, it would be about $13 million a year. So I think, um, I think that could be the number Norwell's looking for. That's a lot of money for a guard. It is. It is. But a 26-year-old first-team All-Pro guard, I mean, I think you could spend money in worse ways. Well, we've seen them spend money in worse ways, but... <laughs> that's, that's like Luke Jokel and Eddie Lacy last year. That's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, my God, Brian. You and I just... <laughs> Not the exact same thing. I was gonna say it's Eddie Lacy and Luke Jokel combined from last season. You let, I mean, you let Sheldon walk. There's money. There's you let Jimmy Graham walk. There's money. There's some money they can play with. <laughs> there's money. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I look at like John Ryan and Bradley McGoo. Those are two guys, even that like you know that's potentially five million of cap space you can spend someplace. I don't know. Yeah, Jeremy Lane. Oh my gosh. I only blew a 0 .03, and I did tell him I was just got high recently, but <laughs> that was so <laughs> such a. Uh, I, I bet his lawyer and his PR people really wish he hadn't uh, tweeted about that. Did you notice the wording though? He was like, "I was just high this time." It was just, just kind of like, "Bro, come on!" <laughs> like, like just I don't know. The wording I think is kind of funny to me, but I just thought of something. Um. If you cut 
if you cut Jeremy Lane and you let Cliff Averill walk, that's almost an Andrew Norwell right there. That's like $11.5, million. Nathan, would you, would you, would you oppose that? No, I guess not. It's, it's fine. (laughs) It's hard for me to get, it's, I mean, did anybody know this guy's name? Like, I mean, even before he got named to the all pro team, like, did you know if I told you in like week 10 about Andrew Norwell, that maybe the Seahawks could sign he's going to be a free agent. Like, would you have known anything about this dude? Which isn't to say that he's not good. I mean, I mean, he's in Carolina and he's an offensive lineman. They don't get stats. I mean, maybe he's been fantastic for years now, but like, uh, it's just a little. I think that, I think that's a fair point to bring up, Jeff. Like, um, this is not uh, Kleche Osemele, you know, who is a, a no-brainer, surefire, like had been practically Pro Bowl level at both left tackle and guard in his time in Baltimore and was young. Like, that guy was a no-brainer. Um, Norwell has not been that so far. I mean, I think he's been good, but he this year he kind of popped a little bit more, you know, do you think it's worth the risk um, of, of spending that kind of money on a guy that maybe hasn't been performing consistently at this level? Sure. Uh, now that they have an offensive line coach who might actually be able to coach offensive linemen, uh, I would take that risk. But overall, in general, the Seahawks got to get better in free agency. If you look at the Eagles and the Patriots, none of them really got a ton out of their drafts last year. They're both going to the Super Bowl. The Seahawks aren't going to have a ton of picks this year. I think Andrew Brandt tweeted out all like the one-year signings the Eagles made last year. Patrick Robinson was one of them. Chris Long, Torrey Smith, Alshon Jeffrey, LeGarrette Blunt. There's, a, you can find value in free agency. Seattle tried to do it last year, but they pretty much missed on every guy with Lacey and Jokel, and they, the Eagles did the same strategies. Then they just hit on their guys, and Blair Walsh. They they pretty much went 0 for in free agency. Bradley McDougald is fine, but. Overall, if you look at the last couple of years, there's Kerry Williams and the Seahawks haven't been great in free agency. And earlier in the years with defensive linemen, they were really solid at finding low cost value guys. There's Alan Branch and Tony McDaniel and a couple of guys there to plug and play. They got Averill and Bennett on one year deals. I don't know if Norwell's the safest play, but I think you got to start looking at some value signings, maybe not the middle class, but like I know Evan mentioned Dante Moncrief in his article. That's a, that's a guy, another guy I would take a shot on. And if you look at Schneider and the personnel team, like they need to get better at pro scouting because they've they've missed on a lot of guys lately, and it's it's really set them back. Well, last thing I'll ask for tonight, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll adjourn for the evening. Is I mean, I think you made great points about value signings, and Seahawks have done that before, but not necessarily right now. Is obviously we're getting started to go into draft season a little bit. Uh, senior bowls this week. Um, you start to see measurements come out. We've also seen mock drafts, you know, take take flight. Two that I'd call out. Um, one, Daniel Jeremiah, um, at Move the Sticks on Twitter. I, I highly recommend following him. He had Isaiah Oliver, a cornerback from Colorado, going to the Seahawks at, at 18. Um, Mel Kuyper, who everybody knows, had um, uh, Derwin James going to – the Seahawks, I believe. I'll double check that. But um, uh, I'm curious, um, you know, Nathan, for example, 
what what's your take of the, the idea that they might take a cornerback at that spot? I don't have a problem with it. Like if if there's a cornerback that they love and they want to go grab him, that's fine. I would be shocked at this point to see it. Um, I feel like we do this every year. Uh, we talk about, well, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is, there's this corner and he could be there. And and maybe this is, you know, they got, they have, they got to get more cornerbacks and, and they just don't do it. They, they've like last year, it was like Kevin King. Will he get to Seattle? Well, he got to Seattle. Seattle traded back. And then, oh, well, he got to Seattle again. We'll, we'll see. And then Seattle <laughs> trades back. Like they're not, I, I just, they're not going to take a cornerback high. I don't think uh, it, it's not what they want to do. Um, We'll see if losing Chris Richard changes all that. I don't think it will. Um, so I have no problems with drafting cornerbacks high or in the first round. They're worth it. You saw what Marshawn Lattimore did for uh, the Saints this year. Uh, I just don't think this team is going to actually do it. Jeff, what's your take? I mean, uh, Jeremiah actually has Derwin James going one spot earlier to the Chargers. And his comment is essentially uh, – James is the perfect safety for Gus Bradley's defense. And that made a lot of sense to me. And I was like, anyone who's hoping that Derwin James falls to the Seahawks, they've got Gus Bradley one pick before them. Um, uh, it's probably gonna be looking for a lot of similar stuff. Yeah. James is a guy. I remember when we ta- and first started talking about the draft safety was the position I called out as something I'd like to see them spend a high pick on early. The more I've dug in, start to dig into this draft class. James is one of like the blue chip players that I would stick and not trade down, I'm I'm definitely okay with that. But the more I dig into it, I just don't see James getting to 18. I think he's a top 12 player in this draft, even with all the quarterbacks. I just keep – I can't envision a scenario where he slips unless he has like a terrible combine or interviews horribly or tests poorly or has like a drug test issue. I just don't see him getting to 18. And in terms of a cornerback, it's like all these analysts forget how Seattle operates every year. They're not taking a cornerback in the first round. There's – I just don't, I'm with Nathan. I don't see it coming. If they didn't take Kevin King last year, who fit the mold, who was a local guy, I just don't see it. There's so many other areas they can go. And I think Pete is just of the belief that he can develop guys and doesn't need to spend high capital on it. And he's yeah, t- proven that he can do that, right? Say that again. He's proven that he can do that. He has a proven, they have a, this team has a proven track record of being able to find, identify, maybe some underrated talent and make them make them ballers. Right. I think they see cornerback the way Nathan sees running back. Mm, no, I, I mean, I would quibble with you on that, but I don't think they devalue, but I, I don't think, I think they value cornerback performance and play. All right. I, don't, I forget that you, you don't value running back performance and play. So, so it's not the same. Mostly. mostly yeah. It's not the same. <laughs> But in terms of, uh, you know, propensity for where they will spend that draft capital, right. um, I think they, they're they looking to take cornerbacks later. This was Shaq Griffin, people forget, was actually the first cornerback that they took ahead of the fourth round. And the cornerback that they took before that that was in the fourth round wasn't Richard Sherman. It wasn't Brandon Browner, who wasn't drafted by us. Um, it wasn't Byron Maxwell. It was Walter Thurmond. You know, and that was in 2010. Um, so, yeah, it's not a position that they generally take early. And last year was flush with cornerbacks. So it's almost like they had to take somebody. Uh, thank God they did. Um, 
Yeah, I, that's it's interesting. This is why I brought it up because I was I actually think Daniel Jeremiah is one of the better draft guys and knows the Seahawks reasonably well. And when he had a cornerback at 18, I I took like a triple take. I was like, what? Um, but anyway, um, we'll have plenty of time to talk more draft. Um, let's wrap it up there. Uh, thank you guys for taking another Tuesday night. Thank you to Lydia uh, Cruz for joining. Please make sure you follow Lydia on Twitter if you don't already. Um, she's at the T-H-E, Lydia Cruz, L-Y-D-I-A-C-R-U-Z. Um, she's one of just a bunch of guests we're going to keep coming on the show over time. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Thank you for all the folks that have subscribed. Um, we got up over 1,000 subscribers last week. That was great. Um, keeps us as a partner with Twitter, which gets us you know, access to more things, um, which <laughs> we'll find out about as they roll out their partner program for us. Uh, but... Um, uh, also, make sure um, if you are a uh, Hawk Blogger follower, please sign up on patreon.com, P A T R E O N.com slash Hawk Blogger. Um, still time to do that. We're going to have plenty of off season content. Um, you know, Nathan wrote a great article this week on, uh, or I think it was last week actually, on Mike Solari. Um, I recommend you check that out if you haven't already. Evan wrote his article this week. I've been working on a bunch of stuff related to breaking down how the Seahawks ended this season um, statistically and where that looks trend wise over the last few years, as well as, you know, what needs to happen in this off season and, and what the priorities should be. So a lot of good stuff coming. Um, great to have you board. So with that guys, um, have a great rest of your night. Go Hawks. There's, there's seven Seahawks in the pro bowl this week. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> Nobody cares about the pro bowl. Oh my God. <laughs> we'll not watch a second of that. You know, the NCAA football used to have these mini games in it, like the, the, the video game. You have mini games. I think the Pro Bowl should take those mini games and make them actual games. They used to do this tug of war thing, war thing uh, and they used to do this like in zone, like bowling. They call it bowling. Fantastic ideas for the Pro Bowl. They should get creative with this and actually do stuff. You're kind of uh, talking about like the Battle of the Network Stars style, is what you're kind of talking about. Like crazy. No, like not actually playing a football game. Yeah, so right. Change the format of like I don't want to put like celebrities in the game. Although it would be cool to watch like Kevin Hart get depleted by you know <laughs> somebody. Not, nothing against Kevin Hart, but anyways. Awesome. <laughs> Take care, guys.